The cancer journey is unique for everyone. It's time to figure out our new normal, and there's no one-size-fits-all manual. Welcome to Unspoken Cancer Truths with Jen Cochran, because surviving is just the beginning. Welcome to Episode 50 of Unspoken Cancer Truths. I'm your host, Jen Cochran. It was so much fun to see everyone getting more in touch with mindfulness last week over in the Surviving is Just the Beginning Facebook group. Thank you again, Camille Kennard, for such a great conversation and meditation. I especially connected to that idea of using the senses as a way to be more mindful. We've been fostering a deaf hound since March, and it's really amazing how much more I explore the world through my other senses as a way to understand this pup. Hounds in general have great sniffers and really good eyesight. And in Abby's case, she has even stronger sight and scenting abilities because of the challenges with her ears. So much so that no one actually realized that she was deaf. She's also incredibly smart. And since we mix hand signals with verbal cues in our training and requests, it wasn't immediately clear that she couldn't hear us. She had two other dogs to follow, so if the others sat, she sat. Once we put it together, all her quirkiness started to make sense. And her anxieties. Since she'd been with us for several months when I put it together, I started tapping into my senses other than hearing to get a better idea of the world from her point of view. If there's an airplane that she can't see in the clouds, she looks for it because she can feel it, the vibration of it in the air. If you can hear, the sound alerts you to the thing that you can't see, so her looking for planes seemed like a hearing trait. But if you become more aware of all the senses, then you can actually feel the sound as well. Talking with Camille last week was a great reminder that we can do this in all different ways for all types of activities, really to become more aware of our body and our surroundings and to ground into that present moment. So if you missed it, you can check out episode 49 on the podcast blog where you'll find some great meditation resources as well, including how to connect with Camille. There are all kinds of ways to self-assess our well-being. And for the past couple of years, I've been using the six categories from the well-being ultimatum. This approach encourages a regular review of each well-being area as a touch point for daily living. Basically, each day has a focus to spend a few minutes on a specific area. So your goals may focus on multiple areas at one time, and that's great. This is just a quick five to 10 minute check-in of what you might need to know, if anything, about a specific area on a given day. So if you're in my Facebook group, you will be familiar with the six areas of well-being because there is a question each day for the specific day's focus area. They include physical, financial, social, mental, purpose, and emotional well-being. Last week for me had a really heavy focus on mental well-being through that lens of mindfulness. Yet the beauty of this is that a focus on mindfulness may improve mental well-being and that might spill over to reflect an improvement in your social well-being by sparking some improved connections or 
Maybe it impacts your purpose well-being by motivating you to get to work on a project that maybe you were putting off. Or maybe your emotional well-being felt a bit of a boost by using mindfulness of your immediate surroundings to kind of quiet out some of the outside noise that we've been experiencing here lately. Or maybe you just notice some benefits to your physical well-being. A little awareness can go a long way to help us overall, especially in those areas we may not really love looking too closely at. Which brings me to today's topic. Today I want to shine a little light on financial well-being. This area is about time, talent, and treasure. Are you investing your time or spending it? How are your talents being invested and what is the state of your treasure? So now riddle me this. When you or someone you know was diagnosed with cancer, of all the areas of well-being, where did financial well-being show up on the list? Anywhere? This is an area that I see showing up more commonly later on down the road. When we start to get very particular about where and how we spend our time because we have less energy, or maybe our priorities have just shifted. We also tend to get laser-focused on our talents and how we're using them and how we want to use them and where we want to use them and how we're feeling appreciated in the use of our talents. And of course, there's the treasure aspect. And that, at a minimum, comes into focus because treatment's expensive. One of the biggest realities, especially here in the United States, that we don't think about when we get a cancer diagnosis is that financial piece and our ability to influence what our treatments cost outside of having insurance and the price protections that that can afford us. And yes, please have health insurance. Even a high deductible catastrophic coverage plan offers coverage and some level of price protections. And it's not a complete solution to the challenges, but it at least provides some level of protection. So I want to give you a kind of a simple example of why it's important to have insurance and even without a medical diagnosis. In November of 2006, on a rainy, overcast kind of morning, I had a car accident on a windy road. Fortunately, no one else was hurt. I was brought to the hospital in an ambulance with a knee joint puncture. And my knee needed to be cleaned out. I was given a tetanus shot and prescribed 24 hours of IV antibiotics just to make sure the shrapnel from the car that had cut me didn't leave me with an infection. The cleaning out part actually required a minor surgery, and the antibiotics required an overnight stay. All said and done, I had 26 stitches along my left knee and four in my lower leg. Six weeks later, I got a bill from the hospital for $14,999. This did not include my surgeon's bill. This was just for the emergency room, direct hospital cost of surgery, and the overnight stay, which isn't even considered an admittance. Less than 24 hours following surgery is considered observation in a ward bed. When you're admitted through emergency, no one asks you for insurance until after the fact. Two weeks after I was discharged from the hospital, I received a call asking if I had insurance. I did. 
And by the way, this is a big reason why you should have it too. If you have a car accident that you are at fault for, or if the driver at fault is uninsured, your health insurance covers your medical bills. And that medical bill piece in your car insurance is likely not going to cover you, or it will basically be supplemental at best. So if you carry medical insurance, if nothing else, you have negotiated rates and what they determine to be reasonable charges for services. And let me show you what that meant in this case. So of that $14,999, an oddly round number, by the way, insurance only found around $2,000 to be billable. Then there was this other $2,000 of mystery charges that they could not assess. I received a letter from the insurance company basically saying, we have no idea what this $2,000 is for, and therefore we can't determine if you need to pay it or not. There are so many things wrong with this. If the insurance juggernaut can't figure it out or get an answer from the hospital, why should that be the patient's responsibility? Just putting that out there. At any rate, I called the hospital, who could not tell me what the $2,000 charge was for. So I wrote them a letter. This is really important. I stated in writing that until they could explain to my insurance company what the charge was, so that my insurance company could determine that the charge was necessary for my stay with them, I was not responsible for the charge. If they could not tell me what it was, they could not expect me to pay it. They never did figure it out or share with me what the charge was for. It never showed up on my credit report. They did, however, sell the debt. In 2019, 137,000 Americans had medical debt of some sort, and 65.5% of all bankruptcies in the U.S. had medical debt as a component, if not the main factor. For 20% of those people with medical debt, it was the only kind of debt that they had. This is not debt incurred from irresponsible spending. If I had not had health insurance in 2006, I would have been responsible for the full $14,999 bill that I received. I would not have been able to pay that bill. Here's the real problem. If my bill was $14,999. In round numbers, approximately $2,000 was determined to be appropriately billed. $2,000 was never identified properly by the hospital. What happened to the other $10,999? The insurance company deemed it inappropriate and adjusted it off the bill. What if we just stopped billing people like this in the first place? How about that? So I give this as an example because it's a finite situation and it informed how I approached the financial side of my cancer journey. My cancer treatments were more in line with $300,000 in billing in the first six months of treatment. Unfortunately, price gouging is a reality in the United States healthcare system. Dr. Marty Mercari, professor and surgeon at Johns Hopkins and an advocate for medical billing transparency, was quoted in a November 2019 CNBC article where he said, We have an irrational marketplace where price gouging has become an accepted way of doing business. What many consumers don't realize 
is that it's possible to shop around on price when it comes to the care they receive. And I completely understand that this is often easier said than done, especially when you start down the path of a cancer diagnosis. If you have insurance, you likely check to see if your doctor's in network before you call them. Then you have a cancer diagnosis, and that might fly right out the window. Because the people you vetted are giving you terrifying news, and they may or may not be clear on who is covered by your plan when they make a referral. When we were scheduling my breast surgery, my surgeon said, which insurance do you have? Great. Here's who you should call. She's in your network, and we work together a lot. I met her. I liked her. We were on the same page in relation to the approach to surgery and reconstruction, and she was in network in my plan. All the stars aligned. Now, the week before my surgery, the hospital I was scheduled at called to do my pre-op. We are fortunate to have four excellent and very local hospital options here. After a nearly 45-minute call, the nurse says, Oh, and by the way, we don't take your insurance, but we're happy to host your surgery. Um, excuse me? Of course they were happy to host my surgery. My out-of-network deductible was $20,000. I remember telling her there was no way that was happening, and she should have led with that information because she had just wasted both of our time. This was one of the only times that I completely broke down during the entire diagnosis moving toward treatment phase of my journey. I had waited weeks for this surgery date, and now it might have to be canceled. The thought of waiting more weeks because of this oversight felt crushing. But not so crushing that I didn't question it and insist it be corrected. Fortunately, a quick call to my plastic surgeon's office, and they had coordinated with my surgeon's team, and I was 30 minutes later on the same day at the hospital up the street from our house. Crisis averted and treasure preserved. A friend of mine was not so fortunate on the referral front. There were several doctors involved for her husband's procedure, and one of them was out of network. Her husband accepted every referral without question. The belief was the doctors must be making the best recommendation, and if they referred someone out of network, they must be the better or only option. And this is where I feel like it's really important to trust yet verify. I 110% believe that doctors become doctors to help people, yet they are not all-knowing beings. And they do not have all the answers. And it actually feels pretty unfair to put that kind of pressure on them. Doctors go to school to help people. They do not get the skills necessary to run a business. And in many cases, they have no idea the specific costs of treatments, especially across providers and within different networks. They have entire teams of people to manage billing and deal with insurance and collections. A friend of mine who's in the business of patient advocacy will also tell you sometimes a doctor refers their friend because they like working with them, not because they're the best choice or the right fit or in your network. It's really important to ask questions 
And most doctors understand that. And they understand the ramifications. And I do believe that if a doctor is not willing to honor your request for a second opinion or answer the questions that you have, they may not actually be your right best option. So just food for thought there. I had a situation last year at my oncologist's office on a smaller scale. He had sold the practice to a national company so that he could better leverage for his patients and could get back to the business of helping people and be out of the business of all the management of the business side of a medical practice. And I happened to mention to him in June that his in-house lab was price gouging in-network in-house processing of labs. In January, I'd had my regular blood work done, and I received a bill for just over $200. This is normally a $5.60 bill. I called and said, something's wrong with this bill. And the billing person called back and said, no, we're approved as an in-network lab now. So we processed it in-network, and your insurance adjusted it according to our negotiated rates. The bill is correct, and it was in-network. So when I went back in April, I insisted that my blood work be sent out to a national lab. The bill for the exact same blood work was $5.60. Both were in-network. The cost of sending out to a national lab was 98% less expensive than the in-office charges. When I was in active treatment, I was having blood work weekly. Imagine 18 weeks of $200 blood work bills on top of all the other treatment expenses. That is a lot of money. My oncologist was horrified. He had no idea that this was happening. And I've stopped having their lab do my blood draws because it was really hit or miss if they actually sent it out or if they processed it in-house as I had requested. So it just became easier for me to go to one of the national labs and know that they were going to do what needed to be done and my bill was going to be $5.60. Cost just isn't a primary concern in the offices unless you're having trouble paying your bills. Bottom line, know your numbers. Is it covered by insurance? What is your out-of-pocket cost? Is the provider of the service in your network? If they're not in your network, is there an in-network option that is equally skilled to provide the service? In-network doesn't mean sacrificing quality. These are all reasonable questions. And if you get significant pushback, remember, a second opinion with a doctor who's going to have your physical and financial well-being in mind might really be necessary. This brings me to the next point. Do not hide from the bills and ask questions when you have them. Money is a topic that can be really tied up in a lot of feelings, and it's not shameful to not be able to pay the high prices of cancer treatment. Outside of signing the financial commitment form, which in most cases says something like, I agree to pay my bill when services are rendered, It doesn't often say exactly what the cost of that bill is going to be. It's one thing to sign a paper that says, I'm a responsible payer of my debts. 
and an entirely different thing to say, I can pay you $5,250 next week because my first chemo treatment hit my deductible and my out-of-pocket maximum 30 minutes after I found out I had cancer and no one told me exactly how much this was going to cost. There are many avenues of financial support when it comes to treatment. Drug companies have programs to pay deductibles for patients. Local groups may have programs to help offset costs, either for medical treatment itself or for living costs, depending on your circumstances. And doctor's offices can set up payment plans. The most important thing is not to hide from the bills. The earlier you inquire about programs available, the more programs may actually be available. A catastrophic medical diagnosis should not have to result in a catastrophic financial crisis. Please do not empty your savings and retirement accounts first. If you have that type of savings, it's there to sustain your basic needs. Explore the options first and remember the message from Dr. Mark Harry. We have an irrational marketplace where price gouging has become an accepted way of doing business. It's okay to ask for help or considerations based on what you're facing. There are many more options out there than you may even realize. And unfortunately, unless we specifically ask what is out there, we're most likely not going to be offered an option. The bottom line here is you're being a responsible caretaker of your financial well-being by understanding the costs of treatment and proactively asking what programs and support you might qualify for to reduce your overall costs. Don't hide from the bills because they definitely don't go away and support often has a clock on it. The last item that I want to talk about today in regard to understanding and navigating the financial side of treatment is negotiation. You can always negotiate. That irrational system of gouging ultimately wants to get paid. And in most cases, they'll accept a lesser amount. Or in the case of that out-of-network provider, there may be an opportunity to negotiate or make the case to the insurance company that they're the best or only option. As my friend the advocate says, if you're having pancreatic surgery, or really any surgery, you want a surgeon who does a few of those a week and not one of those a year. The one who does a special procedure more frequently may not be in your backyard. Therefore, the financial dollar cost may be higher. But when we're informed and understand the pros and cons, we can be in a better position to negotiate, even if it is asking the out-of-network doc to bill at your in-network rates. You'll likely pay more because the out-of-network deductibles and out-of-pocket costs are higher than in-network, but ultimately less than if you never had the conversation. So bottom line, negotiate, negotiate, negotiate. Medical debt that is ignored or goes unpaid ultimately goes into collections and gets sold for pennies on the dollar. Each agency pays less and less for that debt, and they make their money on what they can collect of the original amounts of the debt. The founders of the organization RIPMedicalDebt.org worked for debt collection agencies and saw an opportunity to help people get out of this cycle. The statistics on their homepage are actually quite alarming. 
at a really, really high level, ripmedicaldebt.org assesses the debt that belongs to people most in need of debt forgiveness. Specifically, that's defined as households who are less than two times the federal poverty line or are insolvent. And this is actually the same financial bar that community free clinics use to assess eligibility for services. RIP Medical Debt then uses donations to purchase medical debt for pennies on the dollar. They actually state that donations often help clear a hundred times the value of the donation. They then send families letters to let them know that their debt has been paid. No additional action on their part. They are free of the medical debt, and if it was impacting their credit, that gets cleared as well. This is a really amazing program to support if you're able to do so. This topic of financial well-being as part of a cancer journey is one that I can talk endlessly about. I'm super passionate about people knowing their options and releasing the emotional and physical challenges that can come with financial challenges. Separate from the items to know about navigating the actual treatment costs, I have another recommendation I think could be helpful. And this came out of my initial experience that I shared with my car accident after getting that huge bill. And that was just a single incidence. So I was a little better prepared when I had my cancer diagnosis. And I immediately started tracking all of my appointments and all of my billing. And for me, I did that in a spreadsheet where I tracked what my appointment was, what my total bill for that service was, when insurance made their assessments, what they wrote off, what they paid, and what I was responsible for. I marked when I paid it as well. So the big thing about this is humans make mistakes. We might miss a bill or forget to pay something or we might be incorrectly billed. All it takes is a billing person to transpose a number or a nurse to write down the wrong billing code and treatments get denied or mischarged. And this brings me to the second part of this recommendation. So if tracking bills is not in your zone of genius or calling to get these things corrected if there is a mistake and when you get to the end of a cancer story, Oh my goodness, there's at least one mistake that someone made along the way. It just happens. There's so many opportunities. If this isn't in your zone of genius, ask a trusted person to be your representative. If it's not your spouse, you would likely need to sign a disclosure form to allow them to make inquiries on your behalf. But one typo could mean hours of phone calls to correct. And people really do want to help. So we may as well let someone help you who is great at these types of things and provide support to you in their zone of genius and take that worry off your plate. So that brings me to the end of this week's episode. I hope that you have gotten a little bit of good information on some some components of the financial state of a cancer diagnosis that maybe you hadn't considered before. Can't believe that this is episode number 50. 
So if you have not heard the goals episode from the beginning of this year, I shared that one of my goals this year is to interview 50 people about their cancer story. Patients, survivors, caregivers, support organizations, all are welcome. If you would like to share your story or know someone who might like to, please connect with me. You can come on over to the Facebook page, Surviving is Just the Beginning, to join the community. There you can look for the coffee chat post to schedule some time on my calendar or check out the resources on the podcast homepage for the coffee chat link and other ways to connect with the community. Thank you for listening and have a great week.